This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek graphic novels collection. Get your first volume, Countdown, for only $4.95 when you sign up today at eaglemoss.com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by Harry's. To get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com slash mission log. That's harrys.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 232, Birthright, Parts 1 and 2. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week, we watch an episode or two of Star Trek, then we sleep on it. Then our dreams take flight and tell us what it all means, just as we were programmed to do. This week, Birthright Part 1, the one where Worf goes to find his father and Data sees his dad in a dream. Then Birthright Part 2, starring Worf as Moses. Also a distinct lack of data in Birthright Part 2. Are we going to talk about that, by the way? Uh, maybe, maybe. That, that, that might uh, come to play, yeah. Yeah. We got trivia coming up in just a moment, but first... But first, a word about the official Star Trek graphic novels collection from our friends, and I do mean our friends, at Eagle Moss. For the first time ever, the best of 50 years of Star Trek comics have been brought together in this extraordinary new collection that spans decades and features everything from the first Star Trek comic to the latest adventures. I was flipping through um, Hive earlier, and I'll mm-hmm. tell you what's kind of neat... It, it there's a weird thing that happens where you're like flipping through and of course I mean these are based on a TV show right so they're drawing based on the people in the TV show and I'm flipping through and I'm like oh look there's Riker I haven't seen Riker in years <laughs> now of course we're going back and watching right so I mean I, yeah. I actually saw Riker a few minutes ago <laughs> but I mean you know it's like it's like, hey, these characters are still out there. These characters are still out there having stuff happen to them, doing things. And with, um, you know, with uh, with the uh, graphic novels collection, you get that with, with your, we, well, golly, with your Kirk, with your Spock, with your Riker, <laughs> with your Data. And, uh, with your Seven of Nine. With your Seven yeah. of Nine, sure. And, mm-hmm. uh, and probably more than just those five characters we just named. Yeah. There are more than five characters in Star Trek, and um, I would say that the vast majority of them are represented here, because you've got 50 years' worth of graphic novels and comic books collected. And they're not just collected, they're not just put together, they are bound, hardbound, in these beautiful editions that you will be very proud to display and have a part of your collection. And remember that the stories are written by some of the top writers in science fiction, in Star Trek history, and even actors that you know from the shows. Mark Leonard, Aaron Eisenberg, Will Wheaton, um, and then you have novelists like Peter David, Michael Jan Friedman, Alan Dean Foster, Diane Duane. Yeah, and then uh, some of the stories, of course, are legendary, like I know we've talked about this one before, but Harlan Ellison's original version for uh, City on the Edge of Forever. I heard there was a thing about that, yeah. There was a there was a thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is a thing. I went looking for that so many times in comic book shops, and if you live near a good comic book shop that's got everything you've ever heard about, good, good for you. Um, I, mm-hmm. I happen to not live near one of those, and so <laughs> it's neat to have, uh, you know, some of the some of the... Well, like I say, this is a legendary story. The story of this story is legendary. Then, you know, they went ahead and made it into a story that you could actually read yourself as well. Um, so you get that. And then a bunch of other stories of which you've never heard, but uh, but still uh, still carrying on the whole 
the whole Star Trek saga. And everything, everything is here. So all the publishers, you go all the way back to the beginning with Gold Key, 1967, and then you work your way up. Marvel, DC, Malibu, Paramount Comics, Wildstorm, Tokyo Pop, IDW, they're kind of the, the current holders of the Star Trek name in graphic novels. You get those British comic strips from the 70s that not a lot of people have seen. So that's a great place to see them for the first time. You can start your collection today with Volume 1 Countdown for only $4.95. And that comes with free shipping. Uh, This is the story before J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek movie, uh, letting you in on the circumstances that drove Nero and Spock to travel back to the 23rd century and in so doing, kicking off the Kelvin timeline. That bonus content includes the first Gold Key Star Trek comic book from 1967. You'll get more editions every couple of weeks. Excuse me, twice monthly. Because, you know, some months... Anyway, you'll get it twice monthly, uh, delivered directly to you again. And, of course, you may cancel your subscription at any time. For details on the entire collection, including a host of exclusive free gifts, and to order, visit eaglemoss.com slash missionlog. That address again is eaglemoss.com slash mission log. And a huge thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. <laughs> when we were doing the little ships, we used to ask people to send us pictures of their little ships. Should we ask mm-hmm. people to send us pictures of their graphic novel collection? Sure. You know, uh, multiple volumes on the wall yeah. or on the nightstand <laughs> or whatever, you know. Do it. Why not? <laughs> on the wall is really not the best way to read them, though, I don't think. Yeah, you just, wow, look at look at that stack of books. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How'd you get them to stick on the wall like that? Well, hot glue. So sadly, <laughs> I can't read them anymore. But, uh, yeah. but they look nice up there, don't they? <laughs> so if you want to send us pictures of your graphic novels or, you know, your cat dressed up as your favorite Star Trek character or whatever, mm-hmm. or maybe some thoughts on our show, why not? Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. If those comments happen to be trivial in nature, specifically Star Trek trivial I might be saying that wrong. Anyway, it may turn up in the trivia section of the show, which uh, we are running headlong into right now. You make a good point, Ken. I mean, I like all kinds of trivia. Um, So maybe people will send me non-Star Trek trivia. and uh, (laughs) Maybe we'll just work it into the show sometime. We're probably not going to include it. I don't think so. Unless they want to go ahead and start now sending us the moonlighting trivia. Mm, That would be a good, yeah, good idea. You'd you'd be getting a serious jump on things if you did that. Yeah. All right, today's show, Birthright, Parts 1 and 2. Well, we have Part 1 written by Brannon Braga, and that one was directed by Wienrich Kolbe. Now, we last saw his work on Man of the People. Part 2 is written by Rene Echeverria, and of course, his name got worked into the show as one of the star systems where the Enterprise is searching for where Shrek might have taken Worf. Now, Part 2 is directed by Dan Curry. We've talked about Dan's incredible contributions to the show's visual effects before. In fact... He did the miniature shots of the prison camp for this episode, and he matted that into a photo of a jungle that he took while on vacation. Now, this is his first of only two directing credits, um, and actually his only Star Trek directing credit. But don't feel bad, because he constantly works as a master of visual effects. That is his true calling, of course. 
Uh, let's see, that shuttle prop, we saw it once before in the episode Final Mission, the the huge life-size version of that shuttle prop. And uh, interesting to note that these two parts were shot sometime apart from each other. And in fact, the production had a long holiday break over the course of the two. And uh, there are a lot of live plants on that jungle set. And uh, they all died. Is that true? So, yeah, that is true. Because actually, okay, because at one point when they were wandering through the jungle set, I found myself wondering, and I can't believe I actually thought about this. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many of those are like real plants and how many of those are fake plants. And then I thought, do they go back to like some plant warehouse where like an office might rent them next or another shoot might rent them? But you're telling me they just like locked up the set, went away. Yeah. And they all so, died. So here's how you do it. You, some studios have uh, a nursery and gardening department. Well, that makes sense. Right. But you often have to rent from rental houses like you would a, a, an office or something like that. Um, and you also backfill with a lot of fake stuff, too. But there were a lot of plants in those shots. So you also had a lot of live plants. And, uh, yep, you leave, you turn off all the lights, uh, you probably kill the AC and whatever uh, uh, environmental controls you have in there, and you just leave, and you're like, okay, well, we'll see you everybody in a few weeks, and then you forget to hire somebody to take care of the plants while you're gone. <laughs> it's yeah. just, that's, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah, well, remember, when you're a producer, Ken, you know, remember that you've got to <laughs> hire somebody to pay for the plants. <laughs> Take well, care of the plants while you're gone. Ah, yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 It's one of those things you, you got to be on top of as a TV producer. Maybe I'm particularly upset by it because one of my first jobs, one of my earliest jobs was actually going to offices and washing their plants. Oh, well, that's not yeah. a bad gig. Yeah. No, it's a horrible yeah. gig. I had it for four <laughs> days. I had it for exactly four days because it was really just terrible. And your arm looks like the arm of a dead guy by the time you're done. Oh, man. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm feeling for those plants for some reason. Yeah. No, I, I understand. Yeah, I got it. Um, a ton of deleted scenes from part two. You can check those out if you have the Blu-ray. Uh, just to briefly recap those. Uh, we have a scene where Picard is worried why Worf hasn't turned up. He confides in Deanna about what might be on Worf's mind. Uh, we have a little more about increased security right before Worf gets the beridium pellet injected into his neck. Uh, we have more about the legend of Kalos, And then another bit that contradicts some of the Kalos story we heard in Rightful Air. Uh, oh, snap. Uh, Bael's mother, Giral, confronts Worf about judging mixed Romulan Klingon blood. Cheryl says Tokath was kind, and uh, her husband had died at Kittimer, so, you know, don't judge. We have more with Tokath, uh, his desire to bring peace, but Worf's continued focus on pride and Klingon history. Uh, we do have a little more speechifying by Tokath right before he is going to execute Worf. Um, oh, Sorry about that spoiler for the show. And uh, and yes, we would actually uh, hear a little bit more about Worf's return to the Enterprise before you just have Picard say, and then Worf showed up on this Romulan ship. So yeah, just a little more. But that's a lot of scenes, and it would have made the show run way too long. So you can understand why a lot of that got cut. And uh, let's see, as far as the music, now Jay Chataway, who we've mentioned before as a composer on the show... He wrote the Klingon music for this episode, and Brandon Braga wrote the lyrics. Now, we have a lot of guest stars in this episode. Jennifer Gaddy as Bael, a long line of TV guest appearances to her name, and she will be back for more Trek in a guest appearance when we get to Voyager. James Cromwell 
man, this guy is good. I hope that we get more of him in the future. We will. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler. Um, he he kind of needs no introduction. He is so well known now. But a, a little bit of trivia that's worth noting here. He broke his leg during the shoot schedule on this episode. So his role got trimmed down a little bit. And it's unfortunate because we lost a scene in which he would have talked about being a prisoner himself. And we also didn't learn his fate. He actually would have been killed by one of the Klingons. Okay, well, that makes perfect sense to me, though, because I, I actually had a question later. Spoiler again, but John's going to do the <laughs> recap in a minute, so don't worry about it. So Worf is like within about 10 feet of uh, of that character, right? Yeah. And then he gets caught by the Romulans. And I'm like, what, did they just like not even see him standing there? Or did, right, he, like, right. did he put the ship on yeah. stealth mode and like fly away or what happened there? So I'm glad to know he's dead. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> sure. I'm I sorry. Mean, you I'm, put I'm it glad that way to know that want. somebody thought, you know, thought about, oh, what happened to that guy? Because, yeah, because he, he's still out there telling people, even though, you know, they're like, okay, we'll, t we'll keep this totally secret. Yeah. Oh, but there is that naked mole rat that we forgot to do anything about. <laughs> Sterling Macer Jr., please. Took. This is among his earlier TV credits. Since then, he's been on CSI 24, Jag Bones, NCIS, many, many more. Christine Rose plays Gerald. Now, she's younger than you would think under all that makeup. Uh, the time of this episode, she was only about 42. She has had recurring roles and guest roles on just a tremendous number of TV shows. Uh, if you are Heroes, How I Met Your Mother, Charmed, and Picket Fences. Tukath is played by Alan Scarf. He's British-born and got his start in the early 60s and shows up in all sorts of projects from soap operas to comedies and sci-fi to Lethal Weapon. Sure. Um, we have Alexander Siddig billed here as Siddig El Fadil. Now, who's this guy? Well, we may not have actually met him here. This role was originally written for Terry Farrell, who was playing Dax across the sound stages at DS9. But the filming schedules didn't line up for her to come over to Next Gen. So we meet Sid. He's British born as well. And Star Trek is right up there with his earliest professional film and TV credits. He had preceded that by a lot of theater work, as many actors do. And he hasn't really slowed down since. We will see and, of course, talk a lot more about him in the coming years as we get into Deep Space Nine. And finally, Richard Hurd as Elcor, the elder Klingon prisoner. Now, Richard has been in so much, and yes, he will be in Star Trek again. But the first place he really stood out to me was playing the Supreme Commander of the Visitors, John, in the miniseries V. He's been in so much more, including long stents on T.J. Hooker, Sequest DSV. He's everywhere. Uh, he is also in the Enterprise Blues Band, so you've probably seen him at a convention or two. Interesting. Um, you left one out, though. Who who uh, who played Sung? Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, it doesn't say. I didn't get that far on my notes. <laughs> This episode tells a large story, because it is too large to tell little. Unless it is the part about the android. That part, is little. Carbon. Chauvinism. Prologue. Hey, whoa, what's this? The heard of but not yet seen Deep Space Nine station. And the Enterprise is docked there to assist with rebuilding Bajoran aqueducts. Man, Picard is super stoked 
about those aqueducts. Beverly is excited about using the holodeck because, yeah, you know, they never do that on the Enterprise. On the Enterprise, Data notices a weird power surge, and when he goes to investigate, he meets Dr. Julian Bashir. He's um, not supposed to be in sickbay messing with their stuff, but he's enthralled with the work and with Data, the legendary cybernetic life form. The equipment Bashir is working on is alien, and Data suggests they take it to engineering for further review. Jordy and Worf have been eating at DS9, but Jordy found the replicated pasta to be disgusting, which means, of course, Worf loves it. Just as he's chowing down, an alien approaches Worf and lets him in on a little secret. You know your father Moog, who has caused you so many problems by dying at Kittimer and supposedly colluding with the Romulans? Well, this alien, Jaglom Shrek, has information that Moog is still alive. Act 1. What? Yeah. Shrek claims Moog was captured as a prisoner by the Romulans and is still alive. Worf is not too keen on the idea at all, since Klingons who are playing by the rules would rather die than be taken prisoner. None of this information sits well with Worf, who is even more of his abrasive self when he's back on duty. He's just going to work out his frustration with some Klingon Tai Chi, but Deanna drops by to check on him. How you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Just, you know, breaking stuff because of my anger. Worf isn't happy. He's frustrated with the knowledge that his father may be alive in a prison camp because, you know, that would be much less preferable to death. But he's not one to really talk about his feelings. Data is hard at work with Dr. Bashir in engineering, hooking up stuff, and Bashir is asking about, well, those little details that make Data unique. He breathes. His hair grows. As they hook up their piece of alien equipment, Data is shocked by a power surge and he finds himself in some kind of a dream state. He's walking down the corridors of the Enterprise, and then he sees a young Brent Spiner working at Colonial Williamsburg. When he snaps out of it, Data is a little confused. He was out of it, but he remembers what he saw. That man was Dr. Sung, Data's father. Act 2. There's no rational explanation for what just happened, according to Data. Why would he have a vision about a young version of Dr. Sung? It was a dream, but do androids dream? Of sheep, electric, or otherwise? Bashir thinks that's what it was, but Data isn't sure. He doesn't have dreams or hallucinations, as far as he knows. Kind of like emotions. Nope, just not there. Data confides in Worf. He's not sure what he just experienced, but Klingons put a lot of stock into visions, and boy does Worf... He confirms that, yes, this was a powerful vision, and as if actually connecting the dots to his own dilemma starts to, well, connect the dots to his own dilemma. To learn about one's father is to learn about oneself. Nothing should stop anyone from learning about his father. Hey. A quick trip back to DS9, and Worf is ready to talk to Shrek. He wants to go to the Romulan prison camp where his father is being held. Shrek is very reluctant, but a little Klingon persuasion goes a long way, and he's willing to take Worf on the trip. Act 3. Off on the road to Romulan space. Worf will be dropped off in a place just out of detection of the Romulan guards. It's a dangerous place, and Worf will have to hoof it alone for a good chunk of the journey. Back on the Enterprise, Data interrupts Picard's continued study of Bajoran aqueduct techniques to talk about his dream. He's trying to find meaning in the symbolism— the hammer Dr. Sung was holding in particular by looking at interpretations from other cultures. Picard has a simpler solution. Look inside yourself. 
Meaning is something we make, not something we get from others. Worf and Shrek arrive at the planet Karaya 4. That's where the Romulans are keeping those Klingons prisoner. Being thoughtful like he is, Shrek gives Worf a homing device to help him get back to his ship, which he will move when he comes back to get him in 50 hours. All set then, scary dark jungle, and go. Act 4. After working his way through that jungle, Worf happens upon a woman bathing. She knows he's creeping around and calls out to him. She's a Klingon, and Worf is there to rescue her, except she's not too keen on leaving. She's home, and who is he, and where did he come from? Ever since that chat with Picard, Data's been using his creative outlet to explore meaning in his dream. Painting. A lot of it. And fast. Android fast. 23 paintings in about six hours. Jordy is having a look, too helping Data figure out what it all means. There are things that make sense, like an image of Sung, a hammer, but then smoke, a wing, a bird. Only one thing to do now, let's hook up Data and see if we can scramble his positrons again. Well, it is Data's idea, so he does. This time in the vision, Sung is hammering out what appears to be a bird's wing, a real one. Then he tempers it in a bucket of water, releasing a whole lot of steam, uh, and then it's a bird, and then it flies away. Weird. Data didn't see any of that in his first dream, but he painted it. Then young Dr. Sung talks. Yeah, this is weird. None of it makes sense. Why don't you tell me what's happening? Uh, I, I don't know. Dreams are weird. They don't make sense. And Sung encourages Data in the dream state to just dream. You are the bird. And so his dream goes flying through the Enterprise, then out of the Enterprise and beyond. Act 5. Data, now conscious, tells Dr. Bashir that the whole experience was programmed to kick in at a certain point in his development, but the power surge was an unexpected way to make it happen. So, Data will turn off his conscious mind at some point each day and just dream for a while. Bashir is fascinated, even asking if he can write a paper about the whole experience, which, yes, of course, is a way better offer than anything Bruce Maddox proposed. Approaching the prison camp... Worf hears singing, Klingon singing, and he approaches a large room where several Klingons are gathered around a fire. One of the older Klingons walks away, and Worf sees his chance. He grabs the man, silences him, and explains that he's there to find his father. But, this Klingon explains, that Moog died at Kittimer, in battle with honor. Regardless, Worf can help the 73 Klingons who are there to escape their Romulan captors. The tables turn, though, this Klingon and the 72 others don't want to be rescued, and they call upon their Romulan guards to make sure Worf doesn't escape either. Part 2. Prologue. A Klingon woman explains what happened. At Kittimer, they were knocked unconscious from a blast, and the next thing they knew, they were prisoners. Not their choice, but now here's where things get really difficult. Since the Klingon government disavowed their capture, those same prisoners couldn't ever come back home. They've got nowhere to go. It would bring dishonor on all of their families. They actually got lucky that their captor, Tokath, took some pity on them and gave them a place to live. Worf is totally fine with that. He's like, okay, well, live and let live, I guess. Except Worf is totally not fine with that. What about honor and honor? The prisoners admit that they gave it up. But they have a new life now, and they don't need him messing that up. 
Worf does say that he would not have room in his heart to feel shame about his father if he had lived. And the older Klingon says, yeah, well, I hope my son would kill me. And let's see, nobody cares about Data's weird dreams anymore, so don't ask. Act 1. Life in a prison camp might be a little hard for Worf to adjust to. Those weapons? Literally turning swords into plowshares. That young woman he met, Bael, thinks Worf must be glad to be there since it's safe. There's no war to worry about. True, but Worf insists that even if it's peaceful, it's still a prison. She insists that she's free. But then he asks if she can go to the Klingon homeworld. Why would she want to do that? Too dangerous. Worf's homing device starts beeping and he heads indoors. About that time, the prison warden, Tokath, comes by to see how he's doing. His backstory might shed a little light. The high command said that if he left, then they would kill the prisoners. Tokath stayed. His military career was over. But he felt that strongly about protecting the prisoners. He's not about to let Worf mess up the peace they have now. It's personal, too. Tokath has married one of those Klingons. Later, Worf creates a distraction, an improvised little explosive, just enough to occupy the guards while he scales the wall. Out into the jungle, he goes with guards chasing behind, but he's within clear sight of Shrek's escape ship. As he gets closer, though, it's not Romulans who take him down, it's a Klingon who jumps him from behind. That's just enough time for the Romulans to hold him at gunpoint. Act 2. Picard is getting a little concerned that Uridian's ship that Worf was supposed to be on is not back with Worf. Might need to look into this? Tokath isn't taking any more chances with Worf. Now he's putting a tracker in Worf's neck with a warning that next time he won't be so tolerant. Worf's not exactly making friends fast in the compound. Nothing like a little Klingon Tai Chi the Mokbara won't help. Others are intrigued. They even start following along. Young Tuk doesn't like what he sees, though. The foundation of Klingon combat, and interrupts Worf, who then handily throws him to the ground. Bael invited Worf to her place, and what she shows him is a traditional Klingon warrior armor, worth a ton on eBay if it was screen used in Star Trek The Motion Picture. She doesn't know what any of this stuff is, but Worf gladly explains it. There's even a Janak, which a young woman of age is given. No time like the present to spoil it, Bael's mother, Jiral, shows up and kicks Worf out. Later that night, it's Worf's turn around the fire pit, telling stories about Kales. Nothing like another adult to ruin the fun, this time it's Kor, the elder Klingon. But Bael sticks around. She wants to know if Kales found his father's sword that had been thrown out into the ocean. Good news, Worf said, yes he did. What's important in the stories is that they are true for the times in your life when you hear them. It kind of gets romantic when she asks if Kales ever took a mate. Going in closer, though, Worf sees that Bael has pointed ears, like a Romulan. Act 3. Um, and why does he have a problem with this? Bael says she thought he knew that Tokath was her father. He is seriously not having this, since, you know, Romulans have no honor. Back on the Enterprise, hey, anybody seen Worf? Well, yeah, that Iridian ship had a lot of weird flight plans, and... You know, some of those were near Romulan space. Maybe that's something to check out. The next morning, Worf drops by to apologize to Bael in a way that only Worf can do. I'm sorry for who you are. Oh, oh, uh, wait, that is not a great apology. How about, I'm sorry that the thought of you sickens me. Dang, this is hard. Out in the courtyard, some of the younger Klingons are playing with hoops and spears and what appears to be a terrible mashup of bowling and croquet. 
Worf corrects them. No, it's really more like lawn darts. You throw the spears through the hoop to practice for the hunt. These kids just don't get it at all. Who would want to hunt when they have a replicator? Worf says it's really more about the ritual. He'll show young Tuk sometime. Tokath isn't thrilled with the idea. Okay, Tokath relents. Worf will be allowed to go into the jungle with the boy, but only at the insistence of the Klingon elder. Act 4. All is good on the hunt. The kid is really getting a sense for it. Literally, he can smell the prey and he is digging it. This is exciting. The rest of the Klingons with Tokath have sat down for a presumably replicated meal. And over dinner, Bael asks if she can visit the Klingon homeworld. Before she can get an answer, Tuk walks in with an animal carcass over his shoulders, doing his best impression of Errol Flynn from The Adventures of Robin Hood, and plops it down on the table right in front of Tokath. Oh yeah, time to really eat. Tuk is pumped. He's a warrior now, and he's a little sassy toward Tokath. He digs the songs, the rush from the hunt, all that Klingon lore. It's like Worf has been saying, these people have forgotten who they are. Nothing like a rousing Klingon song to work up the others and really put off Tokath. Act 5. Tokath needs to have a little chat now with McMurphy. I, I mean Worf. He's been a disruptive force, upsetting the fine balance they've had in this idyllic little community. The choice is now simple. Worf can either play by their rules or be put to death. We know what Worf will choose, right? Yeah, he's prepared to die since that would be honorable. Later... Bael stops by to remove the tracking device from Worf's neck. It will allow him to escape and hide in the jungle. Hasn't she learned anything about Worf, though? He would much rather be put to death, and that's just what he tells her. She wants him to stay. Her heart is broken by this news. To him, there's no other choice. He wishes he could take her away, but that is impossible, too. The next morning, Worf arrives to be executed. Tokath makes a short speech saying that he struggled with the very idea, but this is the only solution. Worf threatens their way of life. Before the Romulan sentries can fire, Tuk steps up, dressed in full Klingon armor, stating that they will have to kill him if they kill Worf. Okay, Tukath will take the bait. And then another Klingon steps in, and then another, and then so many of them to the point that Tukath would have to slaughter most of his prisoners, including his daughter, Bael. Jeral talks some sense into her husband. They can't make this a prison for their children. And he puts the weapon down. Worf tells the younger Klingons that it's time for them to go, but they can never reveal what happened here. And soon after, the Enterprise rendezvous with a Romulan ship that has delivered Worf and those prisoners who wanted to leave. The story he tells Picard, though? Those were merely survivors of a ship that crashed a few years ago. No one survived Kittimer. And Picard gets it the end uh female bullion on ds9 female bullion on ds9 about time did you see her about time yeah yeah i know right yeah because yeah, there's been like the two right <laughs> right I'm pretty sure the guy from uh the guy from defending your life mm-hmm. and then uh yes yeah and this one pretty much yeah so that that's good and i didn't see any scissors in her hands either well but, you know she, she, could, she could actually be a barber Who i knows? say she but, might have been on a break yeah she might have been off duty yeah that's true um, so th- this is obviously Deep Space Nine had premiered before this episode aired, but, um, seeing that on screen is cool and Deep Space Nine is a good looking design. I just wonder how efficient it is to get around if you got all those spindly arms to dock your ships. 
Like, it seems like, oh, I'm just going to pull up a ship right next to it, and we got an airlock, and we're just going to walk right in. Like, no, 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 you got about 100 stories worth of things, this long arm you got to go through. We, we got turbo lifts, but there's going to be a long wait for those turbo lifts. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, the problem that I've always had with the S9, even when you see the Enterprise there, mm-hmm. is I still have no sense of scale. Yeah, no, it's really hard, yeah. I, like, okay, so I understand... DS9 is big because the Enterprise is big, yeah. but I still need something. And then it's still, though, I don't know what you're going to put them next to. Them. Oh, so there's a planet. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, right. yeah, things are still weird shapes, right? Yeah. Weird shapes and sizes. I don't know. I mean, I guess we need like a person standing <laughs> next to the Enterprise, standing next to the S9. Yeah. And still, all I would have is, you know, well, that's big. Yeah. And yet it feels to me like they don't, it feels to me like, like when I was a kid and I had a bunch of Star Wars characters you know, but maybe not quite enough Star Wars, like action figures. Mm-hmm. So then I'd grab like some other action figure from something else. Yeah. And they weren't exactly the right size to go together, but they were close enough. That's sort of how I feel when I see like the Enterprise docked at DS9. It's like, oh, somebody took one toy from one set, another toy from another set, put them together. And I understand I'm actually talking about what's on the screen. Yeah. And still it feels to me like mm, those don't quite work size wise, do they? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I think part of it has to do with the lighting. You know, you see the lights. (laughs) You see the lights in the ship in the Enterprise, and you kind of work it out in your head, like, oh, okay, that ship is that big. But then you see the lights in Deep Space Nine, and like, you can only make those holes so tiny before you. They just don't read on camera. So then you kind of go like, oh, okay, well, those windows are the same size as the Enterprise windows. They just got huge windows. All over Deep Space Nine, yeah. It also just feels like an amazing waste of space. Like, you're going to take up that much space yeah. in space. You're going to build something that's, like, that far across, but then it's only, like, three stories tall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you <laughs> if your quarters are on the other side of Deep Space Nine and your work is on the other side of Deep Space Nine, man, yeah. you've got to leave early. You've got to commute <laughs> ahead of you. I'm thinking about switching careers, going to hydroponics. Why? Well, because my, my living quarters are here, <laughs> yeah. and astrometrics is like, all, seriously, yeah. I have to leave like two hours early. Right, right. And somebody's yeah. always in the turbo lift. So, uh, yeah. the, the line for the turbo, oh, please, yeah. I yeah. can't. And when the Enterprise comes to visit, oh, forget about it. They got like a thousand people <laughs> all trying to get around, all trying to use our holodecks and eat our badly replicated food. Yeah. You've got your own holodeck. <laughs> Exactly. You've got four of them. Why yeah. are they using our holodecks? Yeah, ah. we need our program. Like literally, it's just. Can I, a, can I go use their holodecks? No. Yeah, it's literally just a program. We can we can email you the program. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I know this episode really isn't about the Bajoran aqueducts, but they talk about them very often. It would have been nice to have seen Ensign Row at some point. Just to say, like, hey, I'm an expert on Bajoran aqueducts. Although, is she? I mean, that's the thing. In, she in my headcanon, she is. Now she is. I guess, you know, yeah. well, sure. Why not? Yeah. Um, I love uh, Dr. What was his name again? Dr. Julian Bashir. Yeah. Bashir, you say. Bashir? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about him again at some point. I, I love his devil-may-care attitude. It's like, oh, look, here's an advanced piece of alien technology from a whole other quadrant of the galaxy. We have no idea what it is. We mm-hmm. have no idea how to use it. Hey, can I plug it into your ship? Right. Actually, you know what? You look busy. I'm just going to plug it into your ship without even asking. Yeah, I- I'm not even supposed to be on your ship, but I'm going to bring it in <laughs> here, and we'll just plug it in. Yeah. Oh, sure. man. Um, you know that I like to uh, point out food, not just in Star Trek, but pretty much in any film or TV show that I watch. I 
I think that's a it's a grounding thing. We can recognize something like, oh, okay, I, I know what that is. Jordi and Worf. So they're eating tortellini, but just with an inhuman amount of rosemary as a garnish on that plate. Just uh, an aggressively uh, offensive amount of rosemary. Like I don't hate rosemary, but a little bit of rosemary goes a long way. So yeah, that could actually be the reason that Jordy didn't like it. Oh, it could be. He. Yeah. I will say it was played to comic effect, but Worf's sense of taste um, says on a very basic level how different he is from the humans around him. Yeah. And and thinking right. about like Riker's eggs, you yeah. know, the time right. that nobody would eat them and Worf's just like, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> and then, the, you know, the polymer tasting uh, pasta on DS9. It's it's it is the same comedy trope, you know, like, have you ever noticed how different men and women are or, you know, black people are like this and white people are like that. Um there really is something particularly interesting about the difference in this episode, though. Yes. Uh, yeah. To me, anyway. But, I mean, it's I mean, it still plays off as funny, although when we get later in the episode, like, I'm wondering, like, every time that happens, should we be laughing? Like, oh, you're so crazy. <laughs> well, no, actually, I'm a different race and a different culture. And, you know, you could try being sensitive. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> you can also yeah. give me yours if you're not going to finish it because, mm, <laughs> polymerific. Now, there's a problem with that, though. I mean, what if what Jordy was tasting means that there's actually something wrong with the food? <laughs> you know? I mean, that that could be bad. Like, or if you're eating plastic. Stop. You didn't sell them the display model, did you? <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Yes, that was probably. Well, he was big and scary. Look, I'm, I'm glad that they mentioned it a couple of times in the show. Like, hmm, that ship didn't show up again. But I just wonder, people leave the Enterprise for all kinds of reasons all the time. Doesn't anybody have to ask for time off in advance or, you know, like one week we're just missing Deanna for days and then suddenly she shows up as a Romulan again. Now it's Worf's turn and they're like, huh, boy, it's weird that he's been gone for all those hours. But did that, that ship ever come back? Well, it's so weird that he wasn't there. I mean, he's he's a major part of the crew. You you have to wonder. Yeah. Okay. Let's go the other way, though. I mean, seriously, do we need that 20 second scene of him asking Picard if he can go? We don't. We don't. Wouldn't we just assume that he had actually gotten permission from somebody, what with his being security chief? I, I hope so. It just, it does happen a lot. It, it happens an awful lot and seemingly for days on end. So I'm just saying, you know, the, the work rules might be very relaxed on the Enterprise. It might be something to aspire to. If you could just not show up for work and then five <laughs> days later, it's like, huh, wasn't, wasn't John supposed to be here? Oh, We'll assume that he's fine. I have a dream that has been puzzling me. I am all alone. I am rolling a big donut. And the snake wearing a vest comes off. Hey, I'd like to take a quick moment to talk about our sponsor this week, Harry's. Um, I have had the great pleasure of using their product over the last few weeks, and they're fantastic. I was always a two-blade man myself, but I tried out the Harry's five-blade cartridge, and it really does give a closer, smoother shave. And not only is the shaving gel great, but I really love their aftershave balm, which is the perfect thing to use right after a shave. And um, if you didn't hear before, the thing about Harry's is this. Two guys, Jeff and Andy, who just felt like, you know, every time we go to the store to buy razors to replace the ones that we use, we are getting ripped off. And they were right. And they figured the best way to fix that was to create a new company. 
So they created Harry's and they figured the best way to get their product to you is directly and sell blades that are half the price of the going price for other blades. So we're talking about $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more that you would pay at a drugstore. So that was the whole idea. And then that spawned all these fantastic extra products that come along with it, like an ergonomic weighted razor handle, which absolutely feels terrific in your hand. Uh, the shave gel that I talked about, the, the aftershave balm. And here's the best part. You can try it for free. So Harry's is so confident that you will love their blades that they're giving you their trial set for free. All you have to do is cover $3 for shipping. So what's in that trial set that you get for free? Well, you get the weighted ergonomic razor handle. You get the five precision engineered blades in that cartridge with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade. You get the rich lathering shave gel and you get a travel blade cover. So that's a $13 value for you to try for free. So what do you do now? Well, you stop messing around and you get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free trial offer. It's the $13 value for free. All you have to do is cover shipping. So to get that set, including the razor handle, the cartridge and the shave gel, go to harrys.com slash mission log right now, right now, just go to harrys.com slash mission log. And thank you to Harry's for sponsoring this week's show. You know who could use five razor blades? Who's that? Any Klingon. Well, any male Klingon. Okay. Yeah. Because all of them with the beards, mm -hmm. please, and the mustaches. Yeah. Oh, boy. And some of them, they want to trim back that hair a little bit to make the ponytail very prominent, or if they're just going to go all natural and, you know. Should we talk about the impossibility of Klingon society? And it, this is like barring the shaving thing, which, you know, is huge. Oh, sure. Um, Moog may have been caught by Romulans. Yes. Better that he be left there rather than found. For if found, that's three generations of shame. Worf, Alexander, and Alexander's kid, assuming he has a kid. But how's that going to happen? Because shame. Yeah, right? right. And yet the father is the most important thing in the Klingon social structure. He has to find his father and thus be heaped with shame. And then, yes. as if like ripped from the script of Tapestry... Yeah. Uh, that old Klingon that, that Worf finds is like, I can only hope if I had a son and he found me here, he would be Klingon enough to kill me. Ouch. Uh, reminded me very much of like, right, when Picard's dad showed up in Tapestry and was like, you sucked then and you suck now, right? Yeah. Even this dead Klingon, for all intents and purposes, because when he's like, I thought you were dead. And they're like, oh, we are. We died in battle, but we didn't really. But, you know, it's a thing. Whatever. <laughs> Even this dead Klingon who has been living by the graces of a Romulan commander is like, you suck as a Klingon, Worf. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it, like, like all of Worf's life is the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, pretty much. There is no winning if you are Worf at this point. Which actually no. makes me wonder about the people who he took out at the end. They're like, oh, man, you're right. This is nuts. It's like prison, and we want to be out of here. We want to go now. Where are they going to go? <laughs> they, they got nowhere to go. Yeah. Because if they go to the Klingon homeworld, everybody's going to be like, oh, yeah, your parents are awesome. What's that? What happened to you again? Oh, mm -hmm. actually, but they promised they're not going to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. So now there's going to be these people with no history. And if they have no history, they're obviously hiding something. Thus, they have no honor. I'm going to say it's not very honorable to tell a lie and to maintain a lie. Well, uh, that, see, that's a whole other thing. 
I mean, it's not black and white. You're right. That would that would be sort of a black and white morality thing. It's like, oh, yeah. it's never good to tell a lie. But if they are actually protecting these other people who for whom life would be much, much worse if they did. I think morally keeping that a secret makes perfect sense to me. I, I, I can't fault them for that at all. I was honestly reminded a tiny bit of the feeders of Vol. Oh, yeah. Okay. Except, I mean, at least these people wanted to leave. That's a bit different, right? Because yeah, Kirk yeah. did the whole, we call it freedom, and you'll like it a lot, whatever. Yeah. And, and you and I were pretty sure they were dead inside of like a month because they don't even know how to feed themselves, and they got nothing that passes for currency, and really no skills except for feeding Vol, which, right. you know, he doesn't really need feeding anymore with his being dead and all. Um, I'm trying, like, like what what's going to happen with these Klingons? What are they going to do? They are now... They're like, okay, so they're not going to be welcome in Klingon society, probably, since they can't say who their daddy is. Yeah. But then they're also not going to be, I mean, they can't go back to, uh, they can't go back to what has been home at this point. Hmm. Well, they're, they're in a tough spot, but it, here's my problem, you know, with the, the impossibility of Klingon society. I actually, I kind of take it back to Spock. So Spock had the unfortunate ability to logic his way into or out of any problem, which would automatically compound those problems. And the, the Klingons can sort of honor their way into or out of a problem, which then automatically compounds all of those problems. The, the more they try to logic their way into it, or the more they try to honor their way into it, oh, well, this isn't honorable, but that's not honorable, but, well, I should have killed you. Well, I wish you'd killed me, you know? <laughs> this is... Why didn't you kill me? Well, maybe I'll do it now. Well, no, it was my idea, so it wouldn't be honorable now. It'd be right. suicide. Right, ah. right. You missed the... You missed the honorable moment. Yeah. That, Kobayashi a, Maru, dude. Kobayashi Maru. I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Their whole life is a Kobayashi Maru. That's tough. Well, Worf's is anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder he wants to die in battle. Just, you know, <laughs> please. Just to get you people off my back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Worf, I, I love his comeback about the legend of Kaelas. When uh, Tok said, you know, he says, Kalos cried the tears and it made the levels of the ocean rise up. And Tok goes, that's impossible. And Worf goes, for you, perhaps. That's <laughs> that is kind of the ultimate comeback for any impossible story. Yeah. I, yeah. Kalos was a crying machine, man. He could do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I know that we'll talk about the situation in the prison camp quite a bit, but um, Stockholm Syndrome, are we, we seeing that? We think, which, by the way, do not confuse that with the Helsinki formula, which I did one time. Um, that is a very difficult thing. But uh, Stockholm Syndrome, I believe we have talked about on our show before. And yes. uh, the, the question as to whether or not that, that is truly a recognized thing, it, it, it kind of is. And... Um, I wondered how much of that we were seeing here, or since this was a generational thing, if we just saw people who were complacent in the way that they had brought up. Like, that is the entire world that they know from birth, so they're they're okay with the world that they know. Um, right. I don't know that you would call that complacency. I think that would just be like, I mean, if people have been lying to you your whole life. Yeah. I mean, that's... Uh, how do people grow up racist or how do people not grow up racist? It's what they're told, right? So what these people were told their whole life is, oh, there's a war going on out there and it's terrible and it's it's tragic and, yeah. and you wouldn't be welcome, so just be happy here. And they were. Yeah. I mean, they were actually happy there. And I'm not, yeah. we'll get to 
I feel certain we'll get to whether what Worf did was good or not. I think we're supposed to think it was. And for the most part, I think it was. And yet I still, again, I couldn't help think about, I couldn't help thinking about the Peters of all. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my point is, I don't know that they're complacent to be happy in their world. I mean, they have a world. And as far as they know, you know, everything outside of their world is kind of crap. And in fairness, it might actually be. I mean, again, they could join Starfleet. They could actually join Starfleet, and that would be fine. They really can't go back to the Klingon homeworld and be accepted. Yeah, that, that's very true. Yeah. They can't go to Romulus. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's no, for sure. No. So, I mean, I mean, they could set up another colony, I suppose, or just, you know, maybe they're going to live on the Enterprise from now on. Have you thought about some of the incredible opportunities in the world of mining? Because there is <laughs> an awful lot of mining to be done. Oh, in the, the tons century. of mining. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and chances are we'll forget where we even dropped you off. So mm-hmm. yep. it really could work out well for you. Eh, well being a relative term. <laughs> so what should we make of Tokath? Um, we've talked many times before about Star Trek's ability to make us see enemies as people not as things to be destroyed. And um, I I really like the way that his character is given some depth in this episode. There are motivations for what he does, which is is interesting. You had the luxury of two episodes to kind of build that history for him. Um, And I thought that on one level, he represents people from our own history. You've heard stories about prison guards or soldiers who, given a chance acted with compassion. And even if you can question the the ultimate morality of what he's doing, in the moment he acted with some compassion toward those people who were his prisoners and, and gave up his career rather than see them slaughtered, which would have been their uh you know, their their destination. Well, first of all, the ultimate morality. Yes, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And second, I mean it's the Klingons actually wanted to live, right? Yeah. They asked to... Didn't they ask to stay there? And so he was actually just going to let them stay there. And the Romulan homeworld said, well, you can let them stay there, but you have to stay with them. Yeah. I mean, that's the only... That's the layer that turns it into a prison. Uh, the The Romulan homeworld basically said that somebody had to watch over them. Right. All he really seemed to want to do initially was just like, you know, let them live because they asked to, which is mm-hmm. kind of a weird thing because why wouldn't they say, well... Go ahead and kill me. Except he wouldn't do that. Yeah. Is that... Comp- I don't like that. Sorry. The problem I, one of the problems I have with this episode, we got an email from somebody that I'm going to read later. Not the whole thing, but it was an incredible email, honestly. And one of the problems that I have with this episode is it's it's very difficult for me to know which side to be on. There are times where I think, I think what that person did was absolutely right. And then there are other times I'm like, well, I think what that person did was absolutely wrong. Mm-hmm. And then I wonder, like, I just, I have, I have, I have an incredibly difficult time with this episode, honestly. Eh, the parts about Worf, the parts about Data, I'm kind of interested in. And yeah. they honestly, they appeal to me more because they're just fun. Yeah. Honestly, the Worf episode, the, uh, the Worf parts of these episodes um, they're a little shiny. Mm-hmm. They're a little like they're a little spit polished. They're a little like you know, what you are doing is wrong. Well, it, I thought I was doing the best. Well, okay, I kind of get that, but still, 
<laughs> you know, I mean, it's like it, it, there, there are many nuances and yet it doesn't uh, it doesn't feel like it's played that way. Eh, I'm going to stop that now. Please continue, sir. And we'll come back around to all of this stuff. I feel certain. All right. Um, something about the character of Warfear that I, I still wonder, because we've talked about this before with him. Is he still too focused on Klingon history? Sort of the, the fundamentalist version that he follows um, to the extent that he can't loosen up when people's lives are at stake. So he's still more than a bit blinded by his own prejudice or at least his own drive. Um, I know that he has reason to hate Romulans, but this is a different situation and different situations might require different actions. I kept thinking, isn't this what his Starfleet training should have taught him to handle better? Now, I, I know that we're going to get into what the outcome of the episode is and, and the again the morality of, of what's happening here. But had Picard showed up, mm-hmm. now, you could make an argument about Kirk that would be very different. But had Picard showed up and met Tokath and met Ulkor and all these other people, and they all said, yeah, we're, we're fine here. We don't want to go with you. Picard would say, okay, we'll get back on our ship and we will leave you and we will put up cones around your planet and tell nobody to come here either. And then Riker would have made some argument and Beverly would have made some argument. And then Picard would have said, mm, no, we, we need to stay out of this because it's what they asked for. Worf is stirring the pot. And I know that there's a compelling argument to be made about that, but I, I still wonder if Worf is so blinded by his own um, dedication to his ideals that he can't sort of see the forest for the trees sometimes. Yeah, this is the problem I had as well. Yep. First of all, when you talk about Worf's fundamentalism versus Worf's borderline racism, I would say you're actually talking about two different things here. He comes across a bunch of people. He was a bit Kirk. I mean, again, this goes back to the feeders of all thing again. He comes across some people who seem perfectly happy. He says, well, you can't really be happy because this isn't what happiness looks like for a Klingon. And they're like, well, I feel happy. And he's like, no, no, no. Let me tell you what it really means to be a Klingon. And then they're miserable. Mm hmm. I mean, so so what what's he supposed to do at that point? Because here's the thing. What I saw Tokath as actually was sort of like the head of one of these schools for indigenous peoples that were set up in you know, colonized areas hmm. like Australia, like Canada, like the U.S. Mm-hmm. I actually saw a bunch of people who, you know, were raised in a society that was not their society at the same time. Go to what Picard said to Data. Data was like, oh, I'm looking for all these. Like, what, what does this dream mean? What does this dream mean? I've studied 2,000 books on philosophy, and I've studied 500 different cultures. And Picard's like, oh, what about your culture? Because, yeah, you don't come from where everybody comes from, but you're still a culture of one. Yeah, I, I love that line, yeah. Okay, so you could argue on the one hand that 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 what Tokath has done to these Klingon children is rob them of their culture, rob them of their society. You could also argue that what he's done is create a brand new culture. I yep. mean, he honestly thinks that he is doing a good thing here. He says to Worf, at least I think he thinks that. I don't know 100%. That's the problem. See, here's one of the issues. <laughs> <laughs> you and I are white. I don't know if you know this about you. What? Um, you? I know, right? So, I mean, uh, the email that I mentioned uh, that I'm going to do later because it belongs yeah. at the end of the show. But the email that I mentioned later was like uh, he sort of sees what Tokoth has set up 
as uh, as coming from a from a from a position of white privilege. Hmm. Here's what's best for everybody. Let me tell you. Yeah. We call it freedom, and you'll like it a lot. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is that somebody else has decided for these people how it's going to be. At the same time, so's Wharf. I mean, mm-hmm. ah, I don't. And and the thing is, it 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 honestly all feels a bit wrong to me. Mm-hmm. Like like what Tokoth has done is not. And the problem is you're dealing with writers as well. So we have these Klingons who said, can we please live here? And Toka said, yeah, let me ask my boss. And then his boss says, well, if you leave them there by themselves, we're going to kill them. So Tokoth comes back and says, all right, you can stay, but uh, the condition is I stay with you. And then so suddenly they're like living theoretically peacefully. Although in the end, he did have the power of life and death over them. So, yeah, I mean, maybe they live peacefully in the same way that... You know, we live peacefully as long as as long as we don't do anything that we're not supposed to do, or that somebody decides we're not supposed to do, and then all of a sudden we're not living quite so peacefully anymore. I it's ugh. yeah. Well, I mean, that's that, that's a fantastic question. I mean, you know, Worf is asking: Is it better to live in peace but in seclusion in a cage, or to live free but in danger? And you could argue the the relative reality of that danger that they were actually in. You know, they obviously they were in a, a, a cultural culturally imposed danger but it's not like they're going to walk right out into a war zone right i mean the one thing i will say is at, at, at least he did let people decide for themselves when it was over yeah i mean and maybe that's the thing i mean because kirk ga- did not give the feeders of all a choice he yeah. he yeah. destroyed vol right and he was like no it's gonna be fine you're gonna have sex which you've never mm-hmm. done before by the way but it's gonna be great and uh, and well you're gonna get a job which you've never done before and that's probably not gonna be quite as great mm-hmm. and uh, oh there are storms by the way. <laughs> there's weather and you're eventually gonna die now which wasn't gonna happen before my bad on that one yeah uh, deal with it at the very least Worf did give these people a choice he did say all right here's where you're actually from here's what all of this stuff actually means here's what's really going on outside mm-hmm. and now armed with all of this information would you rather stay here or would you rather go? Vial decided to stay with her family, and and it made Worf sad, but that's only because inexplicably he fell in love with her in ten minutes. Um, it made Worf sad that she chose to stay there, but she chose to stay there. Vial's mom chose to stay there with her Romulan husband, mm-hmm. you know, and some of the other Klingons chose to stay as well. So he didn't force anybody out. At the same time, he did bring ruin to what as far as they were concerned, was Eden. Yeah. So, I guess, I mean, at the very least, he's redeemable at the end because he did give them a choice of what they wanted to do. He didn't force everybody off the planet. He didn't blow the whistle on them. Sure. Um, yeah, it's still kind of uh, still kind of weird to me. And then there's this whole racism thing that's, that's different <laughs> than that. Because here's Bael, and she's lovely, apparently, by Klingon standards. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, he's into her based on next to nothing except mm-hmm. we've got well two times 48 minutes but we're yep. gonna make her make him fall in love with her really quickly because we need this other crisis of conscience which is once he finds out she's half romulan he's like oh hey whoa yeah and that's actually the part that i was wondering about when you asked about it earlier i mean because deciding about the klingon fundamentalism for everybody is one thing dealing with his own racism as far as like oh, i'm in love with this woman but oh unbeknownst to me she is this other thing and now suddenly all i can see is this thing that a minute ago i didn't even know she was uh, worst apology yeah <laughs> the worst apology in the world 
the apology was terrible, but I did like the fact that she was able to make him see. She's like, okay, so you know how you love me? And he's like, yeah. And she's like, and I was Romulan then. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, so still love me? And, and you know, finally he has to get over himself, which I do, which I do like. Although it was kind of, I mean, again, he does have, I mean, especially with this, especially with Tokoth, because Tokoth was apparently involved in the, in the uh, ambush at Kittimer. Yeah. Which is where Moog died. So, I mean, he's not just dealing with a Romulan in the abstract. He's dealing with, oh, I'm in love with the daughter of somebody who may have pulled the trigger on Moog. Yeah, right. Still, right. you would hope that he would, well, I guess we can't even really fault him on that, though, because he did rise above it fairly quickly. Hmm. Do you want to change topics for a moment? Oh, could we please? You want to talk about birds? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about data dreaming, because, you mm-hmm. know, we, we introduced it and we just got rid of it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) why was this a two-part episode well it originally wasn't going to be but then there was there was enough story there that they figured okay well if we stretch it out with another story then we can kind of make it legitimately a two-parter but yeah it's unfortunate that this other story didn't get to play out as well as it could have um I thought one of the cool ideas in there was just to question if this is sort of another logical problem that we end up with. You know, if Data was programmed to dream by Sung, mm-hmm. then does that make the experience of dreaming any less legitimate or fulfilling for Data? You know, if it's just a piece of programming. But as you and I like to point out, we are pieces of programming. We, we are biological and we are programmed by millions of years of evolution, but it is still programming that allows our brains to do that. Um, that line, you've crossed over the threshold. So, so Sung wrote this to kick in at a certain point, and mm-hmm. I, I, I really wish that this element of the story had stretched out a little more and, 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 and actually had been more ambiguous. Because I, I thought that was sort of a failing that Data just comes up with the tech-the-tech tech answer. You know, he says like, oh, well, okay, I was programmed this way, and then that's going to kick in. And it was supposed to happen later, but I got hit by plasma, so now it happened. And it sort of it sort of takes the mystery out of it, which I think is really unfortunate. Well, how do we know he's right, though? Well, that's good. Well, I mean, maybe because, because Data's always right. Well, he interpreted his own dream, though, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so, I mean, dreams are funny. Dreams will come to you and try to explain to you why things are the way they are in your life. Yeah. At least that's been my interpretation of dreams. That's what they, you know, sometimes are trying to do. I mean, other times it's just like, what was that? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. But, you know, it's, it's yeah, it, it occurred to me somewhere along the way that maybe he's only dreaming that Sung is telling him all this stuff because he's really not equipped to deal with hallucinations nor dreams. And so maybe once that starts happening, he needs something to explain it to him. And so he reverts to the one thing that he always knows, his programming. <laughs> I can't right. possibly be feeling anything because I don't feel anything. Yeah. But then, you know, I can't be dreaming because I don't dream. But he is, in fact, dreaming. So then something in his positronic brain has to come to him and say, OK, 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 it's cool. Here's what's going on and here's what's why. And he's like, oh, OK, well, that makes sense then. Good. I can continue now. And so I'm going to I'm going to keep dreaming. I choose now to keep dreaming because yeah, right. Dreaming makes sense to me. Um, what did you think of Picard's suggestion to data that he look not at other sources to figure out the meanings of his visions, but they look instead to his own interpretation? Yeah, it's a little challenging to do with an android. Um, 
who, who again, only has a culture of one. Mm-hmm. You know, we had this discussion before about uh, Data's playing style. So he's going to take a little bit of Stradivarius and a little bit of this guy and a little bit of that guy and, and kind of use the best elements. But then Picard sort of says, well, why don't you just take what you like, but come up with your own thing that is a synthesis of that. Mm-hmm. But we don't really know what Data's limitations are when it comes to creativity. So how much creativity does he have to have in order to come up with his own interpretation? I mean, you or I would do the same thing. If something weird happened to us that we couldn't explain, we would set about trying to find other information to give context to that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So Data's sort of doing what he should do, but he sort of has, well, maybe like Worf, a very black and white view of what that interpretation should be. I mean, when you... When Picard says to Data, look inside yourself for the answer, I mean, Data is literally like, okay, well, I'm made of circuits, and you can hook me up to a machine, and Geordi can see inside my head. Literally, he can see inside my head. I don't know. I think that's a a bit of a tough thing to do. I was glad that they had the scene with all the painting, because that actually seemed like a bit of creative expression. Um, Data sitting around thinking about it or reading information about hammers in dreams. Um yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really do it. But I guess if he had to, he might as well go back to human Earth culture if that's Soong's background. I guess what I'm trying to... The, uh, they took the mystery out of it a bit. I said earlier, how do we know that Data didn't actually just make up the thing about Soong? But I guess we actually do know that because his vision stopped before he got to the wing before he got to the smoke, before he got to the bird. So it is actually programming that's already laid in for him, yeah. which is yeah, kind of a bummer because yeah. I'd really rather it were, I would really rather it were something had been tripped up mm-hmm. because once we find out that it's like, Oh, this was something that was supposed to happen at some point. I'd like, why is he deciding? I mean, how does he know it wasn't supposed to have happened already? Yeah. But he was thinking that it's something that was supposed to happen, you know, further down the road. As far as your whole thing about, is the the fact that he's programmed to dream, does that lessen the fact that he's dreaming? Eh, I mean, I like the fact that at the very end of it, Sung says, you're the bird, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of neat because that really is giving Data permission to learn to say can't. That really is giving Data permission to be human or be as human as he can be. It's giving Data permission to to, to move beyond, not just, you know, the dreaming, the act of dreaming, but, you know, to say to give him a dream where he is freed of the confines that have been his life for 20 some odd years now, because that's when he joined Starfleet, right? Hasn't been on the enterprise the whole time, but, but to give him a thought that he can just, you know, take off, just do something else entirely. If he wants to, to really sort of explore his own thought processes, Mm -hmm. not just the fact that he thinks, not just to run a diagnostic on the fact that he thinks, but to really examine how he thinks and, and where he wants to go and what he wants to do with that is uh is is kind of fun i would love it though if like in the next episode he was like walking around being all jim morrison <laughs> oh oh the, yeah hopefully that yeah. happens yeah like he's the lizard king and he can do anything or he could be like uh like um like christopher walken from saturday night live just wandering around going i'm the bird i'm the bird <laughs> <laughs> Not to nitpick, but how did Dr. Bashir get onto the Enterprise with a piece of alien technology? 
without a single security officer stopping him. Well, this is just an extra big episode of Mission Log. I haven't even edited it yet, but I can tell you this is an extra big episode of Mission Log. But that's because we're covering two episodes of Star Trek in this one gigantic episode of Mission Log. Uh, Of course, Birthright Part 1 and Birthright, uh, the one that comes after Part 1. It's the part of the show where we talk about messages, morals, and meanings and try to figure out whether the whole thing holds up. And I put the question to you, Mr. Champion. Uh, Birthrights... (laughs) <laughs> do these episodes hold up as far as you're concerned? Um, I'd like to quote somebody that I have worked with for a number of years um, who I believe said very recently, it all feels a bit wrong to me. Was that me? I, I believe that person was Ken Ray, and it was maybe <laughs> five to eight minutes ago uh, that, Seriously? that he said that. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing this show back. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and, and here's the thing. It, it the episode is actually well produced. Like, I, I think mm-hmm. the dream sequences are very interesting to look at. I think the stuff in the prison camp, uh, th- there's a lot of detail there. And you have that jungle set with all those live plants. Um, and we got a little, <laughs> we got a little visit to um, Deep Space Nine. So it's a sort of an epically produced show. Nothing wrong with the production on that front. But you're sort of left at the end, uh, particularly when it comes to the the moral stuff happening, thinking, well, did we get the least worst outcome? Um, And maybe that's a good thing about Star Trek, that it allows us to mull over these difficult moral issues. You and I certainly had something to mull over when it came to the Apple and the feeders evolve and just what in the world is Kirk thinking when he does this? Um, Mm Mm-hmm. So there is something good about that episode in this, that it feels very Star Trek uh, in that respect, that, that you're given this complex situation, which really can only have complex resolutions and not perfect resolutions. The data story would have been so much more interesting if they had just developed that as a story um, and, and left us with some mystery, some ambiguity and something really deeply introspective about data. But unfortunately, it feels like two unrelated shows stuck together. So what we end up with is this clunky pacing and good stories on their own. Maybe not great stories on their own, but certainly the the data story is not great on its own. But it feels clunky when you stick them together. Um, So it's an okay episode when you take these two by themselves. Production value is fine. Better than fine. It's very good. Um, But story maybe it needed another pass or two mm-hmm. but yeah that that's that's kind of where i am with this one I, I don't think it's amazing but i certainly don't put it in the bottom half of the bunch how about you yeah well i mean it gave us a lot to think about so that's kind of cool uh the problem is it's two episodes yeah it should not have been a two-part episode it should have been two episodes or honestly and nobody was ever going to make a Klingon movie ever, I don't think. Right. But what happens with Worf, I mean, that it feels to me like there's enough there that it could be a movie. If you go grittier, then you're going to be on TV. And if you could actually devote as much time as two episodes would be. Definitely. I mean, without, without the commercials and everything, there's honestly a lot there. We could have felt the pain. We could have felt the, you know, the uh, the, the questioning. Yeah. I, I feel like we're very much told about the pain in this episode. I feel like we're very much told about the questioning. I, I, I feel like 
we're supposed to know that this is difficult, but we don't ever feel it. Yeah. Exactly. And I kind of go, got to go with the same thing, honestly, with the data story. I find the idea of data dreaming fascinating. I wish we didn't know whether it was Sung that had programmed him or if that's just what he's deciding. Um, I don't buy Sung's proclamations about dreaming. What did he say? Um, no man should know where his dreams come from. It spoils the mystery, <laughs> the fun. I don't actually think that's what dreams are, mm-hmm. personally. I think dreams are like if there's something in my life that my brain really wants me to pay attention to, but I'm unwilling to when I'm awake, then my brain grabs me when I'm asleep and is like, dude, what are you doing? Let me, let me hear, let me do a dumb show for you. Okay. This, you know, this, this guy demanding $25 from you is this one thing and this line is something else. And, you know, you work it out now. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like it's my head. Like that's actually a dream that I had recently. Wow. It's, it wow. was a very bizarre dream. Oh, that's only, that's really only about a quarter of it actually. And I still haven't figured out what it is, but I don't think, I mean, if I subscribe to Sung's philosophy, then I would just wake up and go, wow, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. I kind of got to figure there's something going on there that maybe I'll go back and work on, or hopefully my brain will send me a you know less coded message next time. Yeah, it holds up as far as the stuff. Yeah, it yeah. holds up as far as the ideas presented, and yet it is it is. I wish we had two episodes and that they had really concentrated on two separate episodes instead of concentrating on making one long episode for Worf. And then just enough of a data story that we can actually go ahead and make this two episodes. I wish they just left the data part out entirely and maybe really written the warp story. Because I feel like the warp story is about 75% written for me personally. Mm-hmm. I get everything they're saying as far as what they're telling me. I wish I felt what they were saying. And, and, and we didn't cross that bar as far as I'm concerned. Totally get it. Yeah. Now that's me, though. That's me. Now we got an email... Should I go ahead and do the email? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's what... Uh, well, I tell you what. This really... This great email really ties into the Worf story. If we're talking about morals, meanings, yeah. messages, I just want to quickly get in that I, I thought one of the interesting lines, that the standout things to me, was Picard talking to Data about that dream. That the, the real question isn't, what does this mean to others, but what does this mean to us or to you in in that case? Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah. You know, it, it's it's kind of like mission log in that respect. <laughs> you know, we we have the privilege yeah. of sitting here on microphones and, and talking to each other and say, well, what does this mean to us? And then we put that out there to the world. And it's really not about what we think. It's about what you think when you get to mull this over. So that's that was kind of a, a standout thing to me. But that that's only a tiny portion of these episodes. What we got from KD here is really about the, the heart of... Uh, Worf's journey. Well, let me, before we actually get to Katie's email, mm-hmm. let me go back to one thing really quickly, because I didn't feel like there was a message to the data stuff. Um, he is going to take himself offline. Yeah. And I like that, honestly. I, I Lately, I've been doing a lot more craft type stuff, artwork type stuff, mm-hmm. although it's probably more craft than artwork, but even if it was artwork, I'd probably still call it craft because I always feel weird saying that I'm doing art because that seems like, you know, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, there's always work that I could be doing. I mean, mission log is one quarter of what I do, maybe even a little bit less than that. So there's always other stuff that I could be doing, but I've been trying lately to actually, you know, take my head out of all of the stuff that I should be doing. Um, 
so that I can also do some stuff that. So, I mean, so so I can dream. Yeah. I mean, really, honestly, so I can play. Yeah. So that I can, or or at the very least, just zone out. I mean, I'm still being productive. I'm still doing something, but I'm not. I'm not, you know, uh, Star Trek, uh, Apple News, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. other stuff that I do. Um, I'm 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 playing, and I and so I really like that message. Um, honestly, it wasn't stated, you know, hugely. I don't guess, but. You know, at the end of it, um, Bashir asked Data, what are you going to do? He's like, oh, I'm going to turn off my mind, relax, and float down streams. I'm going to, like, you know, dream for just a little bit every day. Yeah. And and that's honestly, like, a wonderful thing because, you know, I know there are so many people who get so upset if if kids or adults or whatever is like, oh, he's always dreaming. Oh, he's always got this crazy idea. Well. That's such a bad thing. Yeah. I guess if that's all you do, yes, that would be a bad thing. But, you know. To take yourself out of the game for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'll quote another uh, quote another Beatle and just you know sit there watching the wheels go round and round. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, take yourself out and sort of let your brain go sideways. Nice, yeah. Now and again, maybe. Yeah. Um, KD's email, though. I mean, here's the thing. No matter what I think of this, uh, no matter what I think of these episodes. I have to love these episodes now because of KD's email, and I'm shortening what he's written quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, for my part, I initially, like I said, I thought of, I actually thought of this side of paradise initially, although it really is more the apple. It really is more the feeders of all sort of thing, I think. Um, yeah, these were people who were happy. They were living healthy as far as, you know, they knew. Uh, they were living free lives as far as they knew. And that's true of the feeders of all, and that's true of the people on this planet as well. They never had any reason to question whether or not they could leave, and so they just assumed that they could. Um, I'm reminded of the Edith Wharton line about uh, Mae Wellen. There was no sense trying to emancipate a wife who had no who hadn't the foggiest notion she wasn't free. Hmm. I mean, and, and that's what Worf comes in and does. He's like, you people aren't happy. And they're like, yeah, we're totally happy. And he's like, uh, but there's an outside. <laughs> and they're like, oh, there is? Maybe I'm not happy. No, you're not. Okay, so... And that's what brought me to sort of like the uh, the, the thought about the schools with the, you know indigenous peoples who were forced to go there to live to be a different way, right? That was here in here in the US, that was in Canada, that was in other countries around the world. And 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 then we got this email from KD. Uh born in New York City, uh, to parents from India. Um when he was very young, the family moved to Minnesota. And everybody there was nice. And he did very well in school, and he saw no other Indo-American kids, and was pretty disconnected from his heritage. And that's his—that's that's him saying that. That's not me saying that. That's that's him. Um, he seems to have felt that absence. If you can feel, you know, something that's not there. And it wasn't until he got to medical school that he finally met other people like him. And so now we pick up with his email. Um, second generation South Asians formed a plurality of the class, he writes. Uh, the vast majority of them came from large cities with a critical mass of South Asians sufficient to maintain a more robust connection uh, to the mother culture. These kids actually knew who they were and where they came from. I met my wife there, uh, the first uh, Indo-American woman he uh, ever dated, apparently, he says. Uh, Twelve years later, and we're happily married with two kids, we strive to give our sons the connection to their culture, which I struggled to develop. Uh, time will tell whether we're successful but I'd like to think that since I'm forewarned, I might be able to head off uh, that particular teenage crisis when it comes. He continues, I see myself as Worf. I was proud of who and what I thought I was, but had practically no contact with my own kind and little firsthand knowledge of where I came from. India and Hindu Indian culture was something I appreciated in the abstract. I also see myself as the Klingons on the Romulan prison. 
They were left alone by their beneficent jailers, so long as they obeyed the rules of the prison and didn't get too ambitious. But defy their expectations, leave the prison, and Tokoth will kill them. Nowadays, I might call the worldview of Tokoth and the Romulans white privilege. I see myself as talk, arrogantly content in my ignorance, convinced there was nothing beyond the walls of the prison which was of consequence to me. I see myself as Bael, ultimately finding strength and resolve once the outside world crashed through the prison walls. I find it a great allegory for the experience of the children of immigrants. To the extent that anyone can put themselves in the shoes of any of the Klingons in this episode, they might better understand who I have become and why I am so fiercely proud of my successes. And so, knowing (laughs) that this episode had that kind of effect on someone, I have to love this episode. I can't help but love this episode now, because there was more to his email, but this is one of those episodes... You and I have talked to people plenty of times. We've talked about... Um, let that be your last battlefield. And the person that we know who was literally turned away from racism by that episode yes. of Star Trek. Uh, this is another episode, and, and this is what can make Star Trek absolutely amazing. This is an episode that just was doing its own thing, making one of 22 or 26 episodes that season, or well, in this case, making two of 22 <laughs> or 26 episodes that season, and, uh, and, and in making television and trying to say something Bigger than, you know, lasers and explosions and alien races and spaceships. Reached a kid who, from what he's saying in his email, was kind of nowhere in who he was and what he was. And that's incredible. So, I mean, I mean, even though I don't have that experience, that is uh, this episode does not do that for me because this is not my experience. I love the fact, though, that it was his experience and that it does, you know, such an incredible thing um, for him. And so episode doesn't sing twice to me, but it, I have to say that it holds up because now by email anyway, I know a guy <laughs> whose life was changed by two hours of Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, I, it's... It's not a matter of me saying I agree that that's of course his experience. <laughs> that, that sounds yeah. it's stunning. It's stunning, isn't it? It I is. Mean, that's... Yeah, it, it, and it's really touching. You know that that's the thing, and that, that's what I think. That I think when you and I talk to a lot of people who are not in this circle that we share with our listeners, um, they don't really get well. Well, why would you do a show like this? And really, you're doing it for that long? And really, there are that many episodes? Really, why do people like that? <laughs> you know. But week after week, we see that it's not really about production value necessarily, although it can take you out of a story, unfortunately. Um, but it really is about moments like this. It, it's about somebody who was touched personally by a story that really spoke to them, and then it allows us to step inside their experience even just a little bit to try to understand where they're coming from. That's kind of the incredible power of using fiction to talk to other people that way. That's why I'm proud to do what we do. It's amazing, actually, because reading his... I mean, there are like three things that popped to mind immediately, or maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is, I did not see what he saw in this episode, but it's totally the Picard thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, why are you worried about what everybody else sees? What do you see in it? But then at the same time, then KD writes to us and he shares that. And uh, yeah, then there's the whole Idic thing, which is, um, yeah, I kind of want to forward this email to anybody who's, re- who's watching this episode. 
Sure. <laughs> so I can be like, well, hey, I mean, yeah, uh, the episode's fine, but read this. Now watch the episode again. Yeah, no, that, just, uh, it, no, exactly. And, and that's what it kind of comes down to. It's like the, the episode can be marginal. Your enjoyment of it, whatever, can be marginal. But this is really what Star Trek is about when, when we yeah. say, what's the point? Well, the point is having a conversation like this. The point is being able to understand somebody else and where they're coming from. So that, that absolutely makes it hold up in that respect. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more about stuff that Roddenberry is up to at roddenberry.com. All kinds of things. There's, um, I think there's like some sort of celebration or something about. Did you know as we record this, uh, mm-hmm. TNG is like 30? What? I know, right? And, and I feel so young. That's the kind of, <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that they do there. You know, there are other shows coming up and they're going to have anniversaries too. But then there's also like there's stuff you can buy. And then there are links to the Roddenberry Foundation. And there are links to shows. And oh my goodness, just so much stuff to check out at Roddenberry.com. If you'd like to help support this show, gosh, we'd love that. Patreon.com slash mission log is the way to do that and find out more. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit Trekmovie.com. Next week, Starship Mine. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Sweet dreams till sunbeams find you. Sweet dreams that leave all worries far behind you. But in your dreams, whatever they be, do not get stabbed in the heart. And transmission. Don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 